Welcome to another episode of Acts of Blood God, US Gamers official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nani Oxford. Hello, I am back. Uh, special thanks to uh, Katie and Eric for covering me for uh, last minute there, last week. Yeah, we had a really fun conversation about RPG romances, which was a thing I was kind of surprised that we had never done on this podcast. Yeah, it sounds like it would have been a fun uh, conversation to be part of, because I'm always into the whole romance thing. I feel like you would have had a lot to add on that subject, so I'm sorry you weren't there. Yeah, maybe we'll have a kind of a reprise of the, of the topic sometime. Indeed. In the meantime, what we are talking about this week, we have a lot to cover. Uh, the big one, of course, is the Sega Genesis 30th anniversary, which you know what time that means, Nadia. Yes, it is time for another console quest. Yes, a new console RPG quest in which we explore the interesting RPG legacy of the Sega Genesis. In addition, we're going to talk a little bit about my experiences with Witcher 3 on Switch, or Switcher, and Nadia is going to talk about Grandia HD, and I guess Nadia has also been playing Fire Emblem Three Houses, which was something that we've been discussing. In fact, everybody on the team is playing Fire Emblem Three Houses. We were just having a really good conversation about character builds and such. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, because uh, what prompted it was someone put uh, Flane in, like, like bulky armor, and you can just see her head is drowning in this in this bulky armor and she looks really distressed but she's being very like dignified about it were you the one who put save her or was that somebody else oh i was the one who wrote save her because she's she's just like (laughs) crying out for help in her soul but she won't say anything out loud she's way too like dignified for that the developers are secretly going why are you putting her in heavy armor she should not be in heavy armor (laughs) her hair is clipping through the heavy armor this is a hint it's not supposed to happen it's so much fun looking at the different character designs um, for the different characters when you are changing them to another class. It really is. Yeah, that's actually a very fun part of the game. And uh, as it is, just kind of talking about, like, you know, here's what I did with this character. And someone else says, oh, I went in a totally opposite direction with them. This is what I made them. Even though the game gives you hints on what they should be, there's no, like, no rules in place, that's for sure. Okay. We'll keep talking about that in a little bit. But in the meantime... Axe the Blog God. You can follow us on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. If you enjoy the show, can we recommend that you leave a review over on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever your preferred podcatcher is? Because if you leave us a review, we become more visible and more popular, and the Blood God smiles upon all of us. Also, we have a newsletter, and you should subscribe to it. It comes out every Wednesday. It is from Nadia. Nadia compiles all of the RPG news of the week and also writes a little essay on her thoughts on something in the RPG sphere. Nadia, what did you write about this week? Well, actually, since it was the 30th uh, anniversary of the Genesis, I kind of cover the Genesis a little bit. Of course, we'll go into way more depth about the Genesis's uh, RPG legacy today, but I did write a little bit about, like, Fantasy Star 4 and how it was just, like, a really unique RPG for its time. Uh, Not perfect, but still uh, very different... It kind of offered a closed story, which is something you don't get with too many RPGs. Uh, We'll be getting into that more today, but it was definitely part of my my newsletter, uh, which you should subscribe to because it is a, I think it is a good newsletter. Yes, and also, if you want to send me an email, drop me a line at cat.bailey at usgamer.net. I'm thinking maybe next week we are either going to do a mailbag, Nadia, in which case, uh, you, you should definitely somebody should definitely send me email so that I can then read that letter on the show. 
conversely, uh, we may also end up doing the fall RPG previews. So I guess we'll have to see, won't we? Yes, we will. It'll be exciting either way. Yes, it will. Okay. In the meantime, Nadia, I mean, you wanted to talk about Fire Emblem next last week, but didn't get a chance to. So it sounds like you're really enjoying it. Yes, uh, very much so. I, uh, without getting into too many spoilers yet, um, I kind of got past the the battle of it's called the Blood of the Eagle and the Lion, which anyone who has played the game up to that point is probably saying, you know, oh boy, I know what that's all about. Uh, it's a it's a bit of an emotional heavy toll, but uh, I am enjoying the game very much. And now I'm thinking to myself, okay, when I'm done, I'd like to do another playthrough with the, another character, maybe Dimitri this time, because I started with, with uh, Claude. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's also, well, there's, uh, there's so much stuff to play, and you know, and uh, I still want to do it, and I don't even know. Choices. I've already started a, I started a new playthrough just recently, um, because I was in the middle of a Dimitri playthrough. And mm-hmm. then I was like, but I, I wanted to see Claude's playthrough because everybody always says that's the one is the best. So I, while I was traveling the other day, I made an executive decision and decided to start a new Claude playthrough. And so far, I'm really enjoying it. The characters are kind of a band of misfits who are a lot of fun. Yeah, there's definitely a, uh, I'm not sure how it it uh goes in other houses but yes it's definitely a mix of noble and commoner which is um kind of makes for an interesting dynamic between the characters yeah there's always been this weird undercurrent of classism in fire emblem where most of the characters are lords uh and actually fire emblem three houses explores that a little bit with the characters of dimitri and claude and edelgard like the different natures of royalty and how uh, it could make you a little sick in the head, honestly. <laughs> if you can't <laughs> yeah. tell, I'm pretty anti-royal, but... Um, you will, uh, you'll like Claude's playthrough because, yes, he is noble, but he's kind of got the whole thing going on there. I, though I heard that Dimitri's playthrough is really interesting. It has to be. That's why I want to do his next, because um, after the, the blood of the eagle and the lion, I want to understand what the hell happened. In hindsight, I feel like I screwed up by picking Edelgard. <laughs> well, she is kind of... Well, that's another one I want to know. I mean, all three of the stories are like, what the hell happened to you? What is? Why is this going on? But uh, Edelgard's a big one in that in that regard. You, Some things happened in her playthrough that I feel like resulted in me losing out on some of the elements that I thought really make Three Houses special. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And so I'm salty about that. So I'm looking <laughs> forward to playing it uh, through it as Claude. Well, keep us updated on that. And I'll be starting my Dimitri playthrough, I'm sure, at some point. So I'm sure I'll be talking about that as well. I mean, I really wish I was playing Final Fantasy VII, honestly. But I don't know. Like, I I should be playing Final Fantasy VII, but I want to keep playing Three Houses. Yeah, I, I know that pain. Because I want to keep playing Dragon Quest Builders 2 on Switch. Because, of course, I, I started a whole new playthrough on Switch. And uh, it, it's great, but... You know, I'm still playing Three Houses, and I've got other games to play and other games to review. Problems, yeah, problems. I'm also on a review that I can't talk about right now. Right, yeah, yeah, I know I know that life. Yeah, I'll be talking about it on Blood Gods soon enough. But in the short term, like, that is also kind of cutting into my Three Houses time. So whenever I travel, I can do it. Uh, actually, though, I'm going to be, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be on a bus for, like, eight to nine hours um, as I head out to Burning Man. So, oh man, yeah. You, you can't bring it with you though, can you? That's your goal. You're going totally tech free. Not on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'll be damned if I sit on that bus for nine hours with nothing to do but reading a book. It's That's not fair. the friggin' 1980s. 
Yeah. In the 1970s or whatever. I'm going to have something. <laughs> when I uh, took a, a youth group trip to uh, Washington, D.C. from Toronto, that's a, that's a 12-hour drive. And all I had was my Walkman. And uh, I had 1984, which I was supposed to read for, for school. I did it. That sounds horrible. It was a good book, but uh, yeah, it was horrible. I mean, the book is really good, yeah. Yeah, it's one of but my favorites. But I often think about, like, what must it have been like to fly in the 1970s uh, overseas, where maybe if you're lucky, there might be a movie playing on the projector for the entire plane. <laughs> uh, to hear my dad talk about it, he says everyone took drugs. Oh, Oh, I have to believe it. I mean, everybody would just have to completely crash out. The good news is that you had a lot more leg room, and you got tons of in-flight meals. And you didn't have to go through security hardly at all. Oh, now that would be hard to imagine. I know, right? You could show up to your flight like two minutes before you had to get on, because you barely had to go through security, and your whole family could come with you to the gate. Now, see, that's just like a, a really misty memory in my mind, the whole everyone going to the gate not happening anymore there's a bit in west wing that really dates it where one of the main characters is thinking about quitting uh their job i think it was either on the campaign or uh, at the white house or something and they're sitting at the airport waiting to get on their flight and uh, president bartlett shows up at the gate and convinces them to come back now admittedly the president of the united states could just walk through security but I think they weren't the president. I think they were just a candidate at the time. Wow, it's like uh, how many like romance movies are about like the the spurned lover like walking past the gate and the lover catching up saying no, come back. Think about all the moments in The Simpsons where uh, they end up meeting somebody at the actual gate to pick them up. Yes. <laughs> I remember The Simpsons making a bunch of airport jokes at, at least at some point in the nineties. <laughs> The one that I that I always think about whenever I travel is when uh, uh, Homer walks by someone holding up a sign that says Simpsons, and he says, "Look, Marge, that guy has the same name as us," and he calls for a taxi. <laughs> That's one of my favorite. So, Nadia, are you going to ever pick up Cold Steel again? I really want to. Um, I probably will this weekend. Uh, we just talked about all the RPGs we were really uh, buried under, but Cold Steel, I got to a part before I had to stop. Where, um, let's just say the the future meets the past, like, kind of hard to explain, but when you start the game and uh, the school is under attack, uh, and then it flashes back six months and kind of brings you forward to that point again, I finally met the point where the story points intersect. So that was a hell of a place to have to stop. So I'd like to to know what the hell is going on. You gotta hurry. Cold Steel 3 is coming out. I know, and I still haven't played Cold Steel 2. Uh, you're too slow, Nadia. You, too you slow. got a, like 100 hours of RPG to do. Luckily, RPG you're going up to PAX West r- like real soon, so therefore you can uh, play on the plane. Yeah, I can't play Cold Steel on the plane because I, <laughs> I got that on you my You got a PSP? Before. Come on. Uh, I guess that's true. Yeah. Or not a PSP, I, a PS Vita. PS, yeah, PS Vita. Then, then I have to start over again. Can I transfer it? I don't remember. Uh, I think, can't you play Cold Steel 2 on a Vita? I think so, but... Can I transfer a save file? I think that it would have that cross-save ability. Huh. Somebody is going to yell at me for being wrong, and I apologize. I'm a bad RPG host. <laughs> someone will someone will, ch- will chime in and let us know what the, sto- what the story is. That's okay. If I'm wrong, I'll just delete this, and I can edit history. It's really cool, actually. Wow, speaking of 1984. 
So I have been, I got to play an RPG, an old favorite last mm-hmm. week, Nadia. I got to play The Witcher 3, but it was on the Nintendo Switch. The Switcher 3. Yeah, the Switcher. Yeah, I haven't heard that one before. No, but I love saying it. I, everybody loves saying it. But yes, uh, basically it was me hanging out in a coffee shop with somebody from CD Projekt uh, chatting about Witcher 3 and such mm-hmm. while I played it for like, oh, an hour or so. And I did the initial quest from... Uh, Blood and Blood and Stone. God, I can't. Why can't I remember the was name it of the? Was it Blood and Wine? Was it? No, it's Blood and Wine and Hearts of Stone. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you you almost had it there. Oh God, Nadia, help! I'm getting old. <laughs> I'm older. I can't help. <laughs> stone and Blood. What? Uh, yeah, no, Hearts of Stone, and I spent a whole bunch of time riding riding around in the wilderness on Roach. And just getting a feel for the the tech in the game. Mm -hmm. I can say that it does look very good for the Mm -hmm. most part on the Nintendo Switch. Um, Obviously, especially playing on handheld, you're going to have... It's not going to look as good as it does on, say, the PS4 Pro or the Xbox One X or the PC. Um, It's definitely a little bit muddier. Um, The... When they're actually having their conversations with the people, the dialogue action areas, it looks really good, actually. Um, oh, wow. When it zoomed in on the pl- on the actual characters, I was like, oh, yeah, this, this looks great. Yeah, okay. Uh, frame rate seems pretty steady at mm-hmm. about 25 frames per second or thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Uh, never really dipped uh, below that. Um, all in all, it seems like a very solid port and maybe one of the, maybe kind of close to the top end of... Uh, game how games look on the on the platform. That's good to know uh, because I am definitely interested in finally playing this game. And if I can play it on the Switch and it's not a total disaster, uh, that will be my platform of choice. Yeah, I think that this game obviously isn't for somebody who's already played it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really somebody who if if you have like an Xbox One or X or a PC or a PS4 that can run Witcher Three. And you don't, and you're you're cool with playing it on a TV. I think it's the kind of game that, like, maybe I would play on my TV rather than on the go, right? <laughs> because it's such a huge, epic, beautiful experience, and I feel like it deserves to be enjoyed as such, right? Of course. But if maybe if you only own a Nintendo Switch and right. you've never played The Witcher Three, or you're just looking for a big old meaty RPG to take with you on the go. I mean, you can't do worse. Witcher 3 was number three on our top 25 RPG list, so there you go. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, I just feel like if it's... uh, I I am always looking for good-looking games, of course, but function is also extremely important to me. And uh, just as I've said before in the past, um, getting to get on the PlayStation 4 and the television isn't always the easiest thing for me. Uh, because we only have one TV in the house, so and we we like to keep the PlayStation 4 in, in the living room. So, you know... So the Switch is kind of my RPG system, and I'm looking forward to playing Witcher on it. I have a question for you. Yes. Do you, when you play on Switch, do mm-hmm. you always play with the music on and your headphones on and everything? Pretty much. Uh, in rare cases, like uh, if I'm doing a battle in, in Fire Emblem, is a good example. Sometimes I'll put on a like a, my own songs or, or whatever. But yes, I almost always play like my own little bubble. See, I'm the opposite. 
I almost always play with the music off. It's very rare that I put on headphones to play on Switch because really? I, I, I don't know, like I just, I'm easily distracted. It, there's way too much focus that it goes into having to put on actual headphones to oh. sit there and play. So I, I will do it with Super Robot Wars um, uh-huh. because the music is kind of like zen. But often I'll end up playing, listening to a podcast, or I'll be watching something on TV while I'm playing on Nintendo Switch. Like I'll put on King, of, I'll throw on King of the Hill and play Three Houses. I find that way too distracting. Anything like when I'm writing, I can't have music with words. I gotta have like video game music or something, you know, low-fi beats or whatever. I can't have people talking to me. I can't have you know TVs jabbering. I gotta have no words. And that makes total sense. Um, I guess just for me, I'm able to kind of block that aspect out and like look back and forth um, while I'm playing whatever my RPG is. And the turn-based RP- turn-based strategy RPGs are definitely the best for this because they're not action games. So I can just kind of glance down, glance up, glance down, glance up. The upshot of all that is saying that you really want to play Witcher 3 with headphones on. Okay, so I'm good. I think I'm good. Yeah, because you you I mean you want to hear the dialogue and the and the music and the atmosphere. It's I can't imagine playing that game with the sound off is what I'm saying. Right. And in that case I I'm pretty well covered. I play Fire Emblem 3 Houses almost exclusively with the sound off. That's um that's too bad. It actually has a very nice soundtrack and it has oh, good yeah. voice acting. Yeah. That's a lovely soundtrack. The voice acting's fine. <laughs> actually, I play with the Japanese voice track, right. so I to ask yeah, I, I mean, it's good Japanese voice acting. Um, the English voice acting is okay, but in that very anime sense. Yeah, um, it. I, I really like it. There's actually a voice actor I was talking to. Uh, the voice actor for Ash is um, did the voice for a character I liked on uh, like a Transformers cartoon I liked. So we were talking a little bit on Twitter about that, and uh, that was kind of fun. Last thing about Switcher... Switcher? Yeah, Switcher. Um, <laughs> is that... I really like that it's on a single high-capacity cartridge. Oh, thank God. Yeah, uh, as opposed to getting the cartridge and then having to download a big old yeah. file or something, Yeah, uh, which is pretty tough if you don't have online. It really, uh, just a little bit, yeah. Um, even so, I probably will end up downloading the game like an idiot, even though it's going to be pretty big. But uh, I do like the idea that someone can just walk into a store like the olden days, buy a game and have it there done it's a done deal yeah i'm kind of done buying uh physical copies of games because i mean just recently i lost my copy of smash brothers ultimate how did you do that well i had this switch case and i've been carrying a smash ultimate and tetris 99 or uh, smash ultimate and mario kart in there Uh uh-huh and i can't find the damn case now oh geez i'm sorry I don't know where the heck it's gone. It might be somewhere in my house, but I'm kind of worried that maybe I left it in the seat of an airplane or something like that. I don't know why I would have done that. That seems crazy to me, but I cannot find it anywhere in my house, and Smash Ultimate is in there, so it's like, oh, great. I guess I got to buy a new copy or something. I don't know. I thought you were going to tell me, well, I got really curious, and I swallowed the cartridges. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I wanted to see what it tasted like. They taste awful. Is that what all, what all those millennials do these days? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm, I'm not a millennial, but I'll I'll sure admit that. Like, yes, the, you are. They, uh, 
not really. I'm 39 years old. I'm an ex. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, you're right at the cutoff. I'm, I'm very much at the cutoff, if, if that. But either way, yes, I did taste the cartridges, and they're terrible. Jesus, Nadia. <laughs> and then I tried God. it again with, I can't remember which game I got recently. I tried it again just to see if it was still bad, and yeah, it's still bad. All right, Nadia, let's get away from eating cartridges, which is, by the way, not something that the Blood God recommends. And no, probably not. And instead, talk about Grandia HD, which you've been playing. First of all, like uh, for background, this is your first time playing Grandia, which a lot of people really have a lot of fond memories of the series. Uh, first things first, which not Grandia are you playing, and what do you think? I'm playing the first one. Um, I actually haven't, I've only had a little bit of time with the game so far. So I am kind of with the first one, getting through like the first, I got to the first major quest, which is where I'm exploring some ruins. And uh, yeah, it's very, very 90s PlayStation RPG. And I mean that in a good way, because, you know, it has that kind of isometric view and you turn the camera around to, to take in your surroundings. You got the mix of like polygonal backgrounds and sprite sprite-based artwork and it's a very unique aesthetic you don't you don't see in games anymore it's very much a product of its time and even the the story seems so like so eager and happy compared to you know what rpgs became a little bit later with with very serious themes uh this is not a game that's very serious it's very much about a kid named justin who is intent on becoming an explorer like his father and his great-grandfather etc etc down the line um so he lives, a, you know, it's the usual story where he lives with, like, his in this in this town that's, you know, he's got his mom who's all nice and supportive. And he's got this uh, friend of who is really cute and funny. I like her a lot. Uh, some people have brought up the graphics, though, which are, um, it's hard to explain. I feel like they smoothed out the sprites in that really kind of anti-aliased way that never really looks quite that good. And I wish there was a way to change. Like, I wish I do wish there were a lot more options for preservation of what the game was versus what it is now. But there, there's no options to speak of. This isn't like, you know, Final Fantasy VII Remastered, where you can speed up the, where you can speed up the battle speed and all that stuff. It's just here's their game. It's on a disc, and go ahead and play. Have fun. And I feel like the ca- I don't know if the, there's a problem with the camera in battle, but I feel like it stutters a lot. And I don't know if that's a new problem or an old problem. I think it's an old problem, actually. <laughs> okay, so that makes a lot. Okay, that stands to reason, then, where it kind of zooms in and it kind of stutters and zooms out and stutters. And uh, it has a very unique battle system where um, it's a little bit hard to, just to explain, but it's uh, not quite real time. But you and your enemies are on this uh, this action bar that and you, your space in the bar like gradually creeps closer towards the action uh the the area where you're allowed to take action and uh once you do you can you know make a strike against an enemy and your friend can join in too if they're in the same spot and you're supposed to prioritize enemies who are closest to attacking you especially if they're getting ready to unleash a special attack uh, i'm not quite used to the battle system yet but it is like I- i'm starting to click with it so there is that yeah, um, when you were talking about that graphics filter, I've watched some videos of it, mm-hmm. and it reminds me of when you're playing on an emulator, and you turn on one of those really bad filters. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I would prefer like having kind of a classic pixel-perfect mode or something like that. I really would. I mean, I'm playing these old RPGs because I love the pixel work from back in the day. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Why are 
Why are you ashamed of pixels? Well, they were pretty explicit about doing a quote-unquote remaster. Um, it's, I, I don't know if you know the history, Nadia, but uh, when it came to Grandia, uh, it came out on the Sega Saturn first. Mm-hmm. And the Saturn is known for looking a little bit better. Um, right. I mean, it doesn't have the English voice acting, which you may have already mentioned is t- kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> I did mention that on, on Twitter the other day, speaking about voice acting, Fire Emblem versus Grandia. Yeah, the way I put it on Twitter is like at first I was like, oh, okay, I'll give the I'll give the English voices a shot, and then like ten minutes later I'm banging a gong trying to get them off the stage. It's so terrible. And I switched to the Japanese. Uh, yeah. Uh, but luckily it has dual audio settings, so you can play in either English or Japanese, so you don't have to suffer through the voices. Which uh, that is a good that is a good feature to have. Uh, there was worse in the PlayStation era, but that doesn't mean I want to listen to what we've got here. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and when it, I think Jason Schreier over Kotaku, who's been on the show before, made a good observation when he said that he kind of wished that it had a fast-forward function. Yes, uh, I definitely wish it had a, a fast-forward function. That's something I've really come to appreciate in the remastered Final Fantasy games, and I'm a little upset that it's not here because uh, it really does help with those sort of chuggy PlayStation RPGs from the olden days. Does it feel slow to you? Maybe a little bit. It's not too bad. Um, yeah, it's tolerable. It's not like Final Fantasy IX, which was just, like, insufferable. Like, every battle in that game takes forever to load if you don't fast forward. I think it's worth pointing out, by the way, that there is some tie-in to today's topic because Game Arts also worked on the Lunar series, which got its start on the Sega CD. Yes, that's right. And uh, I think thematically they, all, they share a lot in common. So I don't think you've gotten to Grandia 2, but I may have mentioned a time or two that I played and finished that game on the Dreamcast back in the day. And I don't know if it really holds up today, but I think that Grandia 2 was a perfectly great B-tier RPG for the most part Mm -hmm. uh, that managed to retain a lot of what was really great about the battle system from the original game. And... I I mean, it's worth at least trying, you know? Oh, yeah. I'll definitely be giving it a try. I was looking around for people, like, saying, uh, what do you prefer? And it seems most people prefer Grandia, but they they do definitely still recommend Grandia, too. Yeah, and I like that it has a, it's in widescreen now. Yes, that's true. It is. Uh, I was mentioning the differences between the Saturn and the PlayStation version, and... Interestingly enough, um, so it was originally reported that Grandia for the the Grandia and Grandia HD would be based on the PlayStation version, uh-huh. but and then kind of gung ho turned around and said, "Well, actually, it's uh, based on both. Like we're doing a remaster. We're not we're not just doing a port." Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So that's why they took extra time was that they wanted to kind of make the best possible version of the two. Right, which is fair. I just really wish they'd left in the option to have pixel-perfect graphics somewhere. Yes. So uh, there's been some discussion about the price point, which is thirty nine ninety nine. What's your yes. take on that, Nadia? Uh, that's a lot of money, isn't it? Or <laughs> I mean, I'm not the kind of person who likes to haggle game prices because I want to see developers get paid. I know that game development is very expensive, um, and frankly, growing up, I paid a lot more for RPGs. I paid, like, well over $100 for Final Fantasy VI. But I also understand why people might be a little bit 
you know, whoa, that's uh, that's a lot of money for nostalgia, especially nostalgia that doesn't really give us too much in the way of extra extra options. Yeah, but at the same time, we've had our concept of what a game is worth completely ruined. <laughs> we really, really, really have. It's a really hard discussion to have. I I never like having it because one of my favorite games last year was Sushi Strikers, and nobody bought that game because it was a full-priced game. And I said, it's it deserves to be a full-priced game. It is, you know, it's a long game. It's a lot of fun. has full voice acting. The writing is good. And everyone's like, no, it looks like a mobile game. It should be like $20. I'm insulted that Nintendo wants me to pay this. I thought it looked like a free-to-play mobile game, honestly. It was really, it was a really <laughs> awesome game, and the few people who played it, like, agree with me on this one. It was a, it was a lot of fun, and I'm sad people overlooked it. It should have been just a mobile game, honestly. No, it, it shouldn't have come out on Switch. No, no, it should have been. But the, it was the, a mobile game. <laughs> the interface is totally a mobile game. I guess I, I just used my finger. No, I and didn't, it didn't my finger. And it didn't need the single-player component. I just needed to play no. online with some friends. No, I, I like the single-player component. It was a whole stupid story about sushi and the end of the world, and, you know, there was no more fish in the sea. It was ridiculous. I did like the I liked the party game aspect. I didn't think mm-hmm. a lot of the other stuff was necessary, and it really didn't need to be full price. I know I'm undermanning my own point here. <laughs> well, I, I, I totally disagree. I think it was... I, I'm sure the, the comments will argue about this for us, but I say it, would, it, does, it clearly... Making it full price wasn't the right move to do because no one bought the stupid thing, except for me, I guess. I think the obvious comparison point is the Secret of Mana Collection. Which yeah, how much was that? I don't remember. That was, I think, even more expensive. That was like forty nine ninety nine. Oh, yeah. that's the square tax, yeah. And but also that game had a complete completely new localization for yes, Trials of Mana. So I mean those those localizations aren't cheap, kids. No, they don't come free, and you can't have everything done by interns. That's the other thing is, do you want companies to treat their employees well? Do you yes. want people to be paid a living wage and not have to work slave hours uh, to contractors? Do you want them to have benefits? Well, pay full price for the freaking games. <laughs> I agree. If you're going to you know, walk the walk, you got to talk the talk. Yeah. So in, in that respect, um, the Grandia collect- HD collection isn't as big, maybe, as having an entirely new localization. Uh, mm-hmm. But they did put a fair amount of work into trying to uh, fix things up on the back end, uh, putting the dual language tracks. I, I guess they have an entirely new German and, and uh, French uh, localization, which oh, isn't I nothing. Didn't. Yeah, I didn't notice it in my options, but that doesn't mean it's not in there somewhere. In which case, uh, that's another thing we uh, that uh, you know modern gaming makes more expensive these days is we have a lot of worldwide releases with a lot of localizations for a lot of a lot of languages. Those all cost money. And this is where my uh, where I speak a little bit of blasphemy, though. Mm-hmm. I don't think the old Grandia holds up that well. <laughs> oh, we're gonna hear about this, I'm sure. I mean, it's it's okay. It looks a little long in the tooth from a graphical standpoint, Is I guess is what I'm going to say. Um, I will say that uh, I appreciate the aesthetic. I, I always love that 90s RPG, PlayStation RPG aesthetic. But I still think uh, if you're going to go for that sort of aesthetic, Breath of Fire 3 is still, and Breath of Fire 4 are still much better looking. I think to this day, 
Grandia is mostly really well remembered because, I mean, it was part of the JRPG boom on the PlayStation. It has kind of a charming pixel look to it. It's from the 90s. It's from kind of a beloved game uh, designer from the 90s in game arts. And yeah, and it had a really good battle system. Yeah, it the battle system is what everybody kind of remembers and they forget that actually the story wasn't that great, especially not for Grandia 2. The characters weren't that particularly interesting. The graphics were never that great. Mm-hmm. And then the series really took a kind of a nosedive after Grandia 2. As Grandia Extreme and, and Grandia 3 were pretty bad, actually. You're telling me Grandia Extreme wasn't extreme? Oh, it had an X in it and everything. Like, it totally <laughs> forgot, forewent the E. Grandia Extreme. Extreme. But somehow not that good. Oh, I wonder how that happened. So, if you asked me, Kat, should I buy the, the Mana Collection or the Grandia Collection? I would say, get the Mana Collection. <laughs> it's not a contest. Well, I'd say that too, just because I haven't played much of Grandia yet, and uh, Mana Collection is just a, it's, it's a good collection, full of three really good games. Can't go wrong. And I, and I understand it's like, you know, different tastes. Maybe you want a turn-based RPG versus a, you know, kind of an action RPG. And mm-hmm. hey, you know, you do you. <laughs> right. uh, figure out what you want, right? But I do think that, broadly speaking, I would rather be playing... Um, a, uh, I, I would rather be playing the Mana series. That's fair, and I'll like, uh, I'll I'll keep on going and see how I, what I think as the as the journey goes on. But more broadly speaking, Nadia, the uh-huh. Switch is a kick-ass retro machine now. It really is. There's just too much to play on it, and I know that's such a like a first-world problem. But God, there's so many great Neo Geo games and Genesis games and now mm-hmm. we got Grandia on there and the Trials game or the Mana games um, it's it's almost too much to keep track of actually the weakest retro offerings to come from the Nintendo Switch is from Nintendo itself yeah uh, they're not exactly very good at offering us uh, good Nintendo online stuff especially as far as RPGs go I mean do you like paying a subscription to play old Nintendo games <laughs> 20 bucks. Uh, I've totally forgotten I even played it. Uh, I even paid it. But to its credit, it's great for someone like my brother who does not keep up with games beyond like, here's what's in front of you right now and it's free to play right now if you want to play. He's like, oh, sweet. I can play Mario 3. This is awesome. I haven't played this game in years, you know? I do think it's funny that the Switch Online service is being undermined by collection, vastly superior collections from Konami and Capcom. <laughs> I know. It's pretty funny. Oh, and also Square, too. So it's oh, like, of course, yes. you, you can't even put Mega Man or, or Castlevania on this thing because, I mean, obviously Konami and Capcom want you to buy the collections. <laughs> it's kind of like the way Netflix has split into uh, a whole bunch of services that everyone wants to pay for. Which I don't mind paying for, like, the Konami shooter, shoot 'em up collection, which I did. Or the arcade classics, or the all of the Mega Man collections, which I totally did, so that I could have like basically every Mega Man on my console. Uh huh. Pretty much. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty good time we're living in as far as retro games go. I mean, if you went back to 1999 and told you know 16 year old Cat, hey, there's going to be a console that is both a hybrid portable and you can plug it into your TV, and it's going to have most of the games that you really like like just right there 
um, I would be like, 16-year-old cat go, sign me the hell up. <laughs> I'd probably just explode. <laughs> you just like, into like a thing of confetti. Removed from the timeline. Yeah, I really hope that the, I mean, apparently Nintendo registered a, a Super NES controller with the FCC or something to that effect. Yeah. And there's rumor suggestions that maybe we will soon be seeing SNES games on the Switch, which, I mean, I hope so. <laughs> it's time. I, I really hope so. I, it is time. Uh, but we've been hearing this for forever and a day now. Nah, I can play Mario World for the hundredth time. Uh, yay! Woo! I don't know, if, if, uh, if we get some, like, good RPGs on there that, you know, weren't covered in collections, I'll be cool. Yeah. Okay, so that's our, our take on the Grandia HD collection. And now uh, let's go talk about some of the other works from Game Arts and other RPG uh, designers as we go into the console RPG quest for the Sega Genesis. Don't go away. Okay, we're back with the console RPG quest for the Sega Genesis, our latest. We're continuing right on through the 16-bit era. We already did the PC Engine. Super Nintendo is still to go. I guess this is where we kind of admit, Nadia, that we were both kind of Nintendo kids. Uh, Were you firmly in the trenches for Nintendo in the console war of 1989 to 1995? Oh yeah, I was I was pretty deeply in there for Nintendo. Um, I was kind of a shithead about it, if you want to be honest. <laughs> oh, I was such a shithead about the Nintendo. Oh my god, <laughs> to the point of being obsessive. It was ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. And I realized one day, okay, Nintendo's not paying me. What am I doing? I still love Nintendo, but it's like, yeah. I could quote the specifications for the freaking Super Nintendo and how it had so many more colors. Okay, see, I, I didn't know that much when I was a kid. I think I, I got around to it eventually, but yeah. I think it's interesting how that kind of console wars has continued to affect the tastes of people to this day. Um, I know people who were very much Genesis kids, and mm-hmm. they have a very different perspective on games, I feel. Yeah, I think you are right, because um, as we are going to cover pretty soon, uh, certain genres really shone on certain consoles, and it was very much the same with the SNES and the Genesis, even though, for the most part, it wasn't too hard to port one game to the other. It was kind of the beginning of a culture shift, I feel, in -hmm. games, because, um, you know, I was pretty young in the 80s, so I I didn't really remember too much of what the culture was like, but... It felt like games were kind of being a the loud, rude teenager uh, by the time, by the early 90s or so, and the Sega Genesis perfectly encapsulated it with the, with the guy on the TV going, Sega! Yeah, the, the Sega scream as it came to be known. It was definitely, um, it was, I think it was covered in the book uh, Game Over that uh, Sega was kind of regarded, it was specifically marketed for kids who were outgrowing Nintendo, and, you know, at the time, 
you know, you had your grunge, you had Guns N' Roses, and you had, like, all that cool teenage stuff, and that's what the Genesis was marketed towards. Yeah, uh, I remember all the kids in school definitely saw Nintendo as tired and played out. Mm. Mario was a dork. <laughs> well, he kind of is, but a lovable dork. Don't you, do you remember the commercial uh, with the pickup truck that had the TV and uh, it was kind of like going and moving away and it had a cop, it had Mario Kart playing in the back and then a race car with, uh, with Sonic or whatever goes zooming by? Yeah, it was, it was actually like a brilliant ad campaign, frankly, to look, to make Mario Kart like the most beloved game franchise, the most profitable game franchise look like a piece of crap. Uh, in such a degree that was that took some work and that was the whole like blast processing i don't want to specifically call it a lie but let's face it it wasn't quite the truth either i mean mario kart did look pretty dorky compared to whatever was coming out in the sega genesis at the time oh absolutely and you know if me being you know that nintendo shithead I, i'd always say how much but you know mario world isn't supposed to be fast like sonic it's supposed to be about exploration and platforming See, like, you've already mm-hmm. lost the debate then i you're lost having the debate <laughs> you're having the you're having the debate on sega's terms yeah you're absolutely right that's a good point i never thought of it that way and they were also putting out uh kind of th- this hokum about having blast processing and such based on the fact that the the processor in the Sega Genesis was probably strictly speaking faster, <laughs> so they just yeah, called it bit. blast processing. It was uh, honestly one of the best buzz terms I could think of in advertising. Hey, I still remember it to this day. Yeah, I, I saw. I was watching a YouTube video the other day of uh, someone wearing a shirt that said, "Like you know, warning powered by blast processing." Yeah, no kidding. I mean, the only reason that Sonic could be played was a blast processing. Of course, Nintendo, there's no way the Super Nintendo could go that fast. I mean, come on. Do you remember the original Sonic commercials? I think I remember a couple. I remember the one with, like, the old lady talking about how, you know, rude Sonic was and why couldn't he be more like that might, that nice Mario. Yes, exactly. There was uh, the, the old teacher who yes. was just talking about how she preferred Mario to that mean old Sonic, which uh, captured the kind of rude teenager attitude the cynical yes. teenager attitude of the early 90s yeah and uh that was that was another really good ad because it just turns the whole thing on its head you know make mario seem like say nice things about mario and say awful things about sonic except it's coming out of like the mouth of an old lady who doesn't know anything from anything so oh yeah and then nintendo tried to fire back with the play it loud campaign and we all know what gamers hate old people and women <laughs> pretty much <laughs> combine those two into one you got the perfect ad it was actually a perfect ad so a little bit of history the sega genesis was released in 1989 in north america it was called the sega mega drive elsewhere and it was kind of meant to be more mature than the famicom um it was meant to be a response to the pc engine which mm-hmm. had been launched with a lot of fanfare by nec was not that successful over in Japan. Um, it resulted in the establishment of Nintendo, or sorry, not Nintendo, Sega of America, who mm-hmm. ended up handling the marketing and such. And initially, it wasn't that successful. It had a lot of ads, like, of course, the famous Sega Genesis does what Nintendo don't add. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to say, I, I don't know if 
this was uh, they were doing, but they signed Buster Douglas right after he took out uh, Mike Tyson. Oh, right. Uh, that was an ad campaign that sure worked, I guess. Or Buster Douglas boxing, except then Buster Douglas immediately got fat. <laughs> got demolished. <laughs> because they loved the imagery, right? Because Buster Douglas took out Mike Tyson. Yes, yes. And, uh, well, not for long. And they were the scrappy underdog going against the price-fixing, anti-competitive Nintendo, who was the the massive juggernaut. Mm Mm-hmm. Where retailers wouldn't even put Sega Genesis games really in their stores because they were so afraid of Nintendo, like, yanking their, 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 their ad displays. Yeah, I mean, just slightly illegal. Yeah. Well, there's a reason Nintendo had to set a lot of court on that front for price-fixing and anti-competitive practices, which, by the way, results in them just sending out a $5 coupon for, you guessed it, more Nintendo games. Yeah, the the judge really kind of uh, gave gave them a hand up there, and he probably had no idea. Anyway, so Tom Kalinske was brought in from Mattel, and, I mean, he gets the lion's share of the credit of turning the Genesis into a mega-hit in the U.S., um, at least according to Console Wars, which, uh, all due respect to the author of that book, I think that maybe it's a little bit of a kind of victory tour for, for Tom Kalinske, but... I, I never read it, but my husband loves the book. It was a weird read because it was ri- written in kind of a fictional style, but it was oh. meant to be nonfiction. Right, that's kind of yeah. Weird. They really they made up dialogue. They really embellished it, and he's like clear in saying that uh, the dialogue was all approved by the the people uh, who he, the, he interviewed, and so it was just mostly a dramatization. But mm-hmm. also, there are like some details that they get wrong, like how uh, the recruitment of Howard Phillips and stuff, which like Howard Phillips kind of was like uh, that the way that this book describes that whole sequence was not how it actually went down and it really it it basically turns tom kalinsky as the god who was staring down an obstinate sega of japan who really didn't know what they were doing he was the genius you know mm-hmm. yeah um and the only reason sega failed with the saturn was because they didn't listen to him so you see what i'm saying yes that's the only reason it had nothing to do with the hardware or anything but the Sega Genesis, I mean, it was a hit, and it was beautifully mm-hmm. marketed. It ended up, I mean, going toe-to-toe with the Nintendo, and in many respects, beating it at its own game. And it wasn't until maybe 1994 or something that Donkey Kong Country came out and yes. swung it back for Nintendo. And then just by kind of sheer, like, sticking around for quite a while, it managed to eventually outlast Sega Genesis because Sega moved on to the Sega Saturn. And it didn't help, of course, that Sega really shot itself in the foot with things like the 32X, which was yes. a total disaster. Yeah, that that certainly was a module. Do you remember the commercials for that when uh, they just made them as sexual as possible? <laughs> the console goes here, it goes inside the slot. Isn't that funny? I didn't understand the 32X. It like didn't actually make any sense to me. I was like, I don't get it. <laughs> no, there this wasn't is supposed much to be. Yet. These are supposed to be 32 big games. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I, I remember looking at these commercials saying, "Okay, well, I know the Saturn's coming out. If I were to theoretically get a, a Sega console in the next generation, why would I spend my money on 32X? I'd save it for the Saturn." I want to point out, we haven't brought up RPGs yet. 
We always oh, like yeah. to talk about how uh, RPGs were so critical to the Super Nintendo's legacy and such. Um, mm-hmm. But really, at the time, we weren't talking about RPGs when it came to the Genesis or the Super Nintendo. The games that no, mattered in America, and I, I don't know about Canada, but definitely in America, were games like Mortal Kombat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mortal Kombat was a big hit here. Uh, we pretty much liked whatever America liked, barring, like, I guess, football was more hockey, but yeah. I mean, NHL 94, the sports exactly. games. that was a very big one. And that was, like, why my brother wanted a Genesis and I wanted a Super Nintendo. He wanted all the sports games, especially NHL 94. And I was like, eh, I like RPGs. Go to hell. It's my yeah, life. I mean, uh, I would say the 16-bit era was driven as much by fighting games as anything. And there was mm-hmm. still a very strong kind of arcade bent to it. Uh, some of the very best games on the Sega Genesis were games like Thunder Force, uh, beat-em-ups like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and Street, Streets of Rage 2. Right, that's a big one. Obviously, the platformers and things like that. Uh, a lot of developers were taking cartoons like Castle of Illusion and 16-bit, mm-hmm. the 16-bit era is when you could really start to do justice to the kind of the lavish animated look of these games. So you got crazy things like on the Super Nintendo, Looney Tunes games and things like that. Yeah. And I mean, the Genesis also had uh, the Aladdin, of course. Uh, it had a very special kind of version of Aladdin, which was animated by uh, Disney animators specifically, whereas the Super Nintendo version was very good, but it didn't have the same, you know, marketable sort of look to it. And Earthworm Jim, too. I mean, yes. that game looked amazing in 1994. It did. It still looks really good, although I'm not a fan of it. I find it's really, like, unfairly hard. But uh, great soundtrack, though. One of the things that was interesting, uh, everybody was always comparing the Genesis version of games to the Super Nintendo games. The Genesis versions were often very different. Yes, they could be. And uh, I just want to give uh, one of the initial examples of an RPG that uh, came out on both the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo was Shadowrun. Right. Which was, of course, based on the classic tabletop game uh, from mm-hmm. uh, that is basically, it takes fantasy elements and mixes them in with cyberpunk elements. Like people become, people are like orcs and elves and such, but there's also a strong kind of futurism element. Yeah. And you can go into the Matrix and all of that. The Super Nintendo version was more of a point-and-click kind of awkward adventure, whereas mm-hmm. the Genesis version was more of a top-down kind of thing. And yeah, yeah. The Super and Nintendo yeah. version, the, the Matrix element of it, going into the computer, was really basic, whereas the Genesis version was this really cool 3D kind of aspect. Yeah, the Genesis one, like, uh, you're right, the Super Nintendo going to the Matrix sequence was really, like, kind of a top-down grid. It wasn't exciting at all, but I was looking at the Genesis version, it's like, you just turn into, like, the lawnmower man Jesus. Like, you, it's crazy. <laughs> it looks really good. It reminds me a lot of Fantasy Star, actually. Yeah, it was actually pretty impressive, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you would have entirely different developers making these games, and so as a result, often they would end up being extremely different and then you could have even more of a debate and obviously that doesn't happen anymore because uh (laughs) i mean games are i mean game consoles are much more standardized and they're using off-the-shelf parts and that kind of thing whereas the super nintendo and the, the the sega genesis were basically customized systems they were their own thing 
I guess so. Um, although, I don't know, I feel like there were a lot of ports that were, you know, not exactly neck and neck, because, of course, the Super Nintendo had uh, a better sound chip and uh, a better gr- uh, music. Uh, sorry, It had music, a uh, different color. sound chip. There could be I really... Know, I, I say it's better. I heard so much bad Super Nintendo music where they just did the crappy synth uh, guitar. The, the, the wailing synth guitar. Yes. Whereas God bless a Sega guitar. Genesis... This a uh, really well done Sega Genesis soundtrack could be something special. See Streets of Rage too. Yeah, but you have to know what you're doing to make it really special. Um, I, I mean, that's the that. same with the Super Nintendo. Well, I, the, here's the example I think of, and this is so stupid. I had Bram Stoker's Dracula on the Super Nintendo, and listen to the music on the Genesis is just terrible, but it actually sounds pretty good on the Super Nintendo. So, do you remember the first time you ever saw Sega Genesis, Nadia? Yeah, I went to a friend's house and uh, just basically had my mind blown by Sonic the Hedgehog. And I was, even though I was saving money for Super Nintendo, I was thinking, I was really kind of flirting with the idea of, of getting a Genesis and Sonic. But uh, I get, I'm kind of glad I didn't in the end because, again, RPGs. I was completely obsessed with Sonic back in that it's easy time. To, it was very easy to get obsessed with Sonic, especially, you know, speaking of soundtracks, that had a fantastic soundtrack that really stuck to me at the time. Yeah, and Sonic was just so dang cool. He was everywhere. He had his own he cartoons. So oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I know. Sonic Mania was crazy town. Like, I don't, I don't think people can even really grasp how big Sonic was in the early 90s. Yeah, Sonic was just everywhere. Like, he was the 90s practically for a long time. Were you aware of Fantasy Star? Wasn't aware of Fantasy Star for quite a long time. Probably not until I was really, really into RPGs, and that wouldn't have been for a while. I think maybe the first time I really was curious about Fantasy Star was I was reading like a a Game Pro that was advertising um, Fantasy Star Four, like previewing it, and I thought that was like a really interesting looking game, particularly the the anime sort of portraits they use and the anime looking cutscenes. Like that was actually a really clever way to present the story with like a lower power system like a Genesis. Um yeah, and I was just kind of taken by it and a little bit upset, like, oh well I guess I can't play this. I don't have a Genesis. I definitely was not that aware of Fantasy Star because I wasn't really aware of RPGs in general at that time. Mm-hmm. Even right. though like, I was playing Final Fantasy Legend and such. I wasn't really thinking of them as RPGs and platformers and shoot 'em ups I thought of them as video games. Of course, right. And I was like, more video games. Put them straight into my veins. Need them. <laughs> like the tiny little addict that I was. Just being kind of impressed with the anime look, because I always loved the anime look as a kid. And um, it wasn't something that people flaunted very much uh, in the 90s, and especially in the early 90s, until Pokemon became a thing. I do remember seeing advertisements for Fantasy Star in various games and it being covered and being impressed by the look of Fantasy Star 2 and Fantasy Star 4 and right. thinking to myself, wow, man, those games look so epic and everything. Just the, the kind of game that only a 16-bit console can do. Yeah, I mean, you're not wrong. It, it very much was, especially Fantasy Star 2, which came here westward like months before the original Final Fantasy. I, I became much more aware of the Fantasy Star series because of Retronauts, which, of yeah. course, um, I've been on. You know, both of us have been on a time or two. 
And I just mm-hmm. remember a story from uh, Shane Benhausen about how he was completely nuts for Fantasy Star. And then when Fantasy Star 3 came out, he had all of his friends over and he made him watch as he started to play Fantasy Star 3. And then after like an hour, he was so upset that he just sent them all home. <laughs> oh. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. I can see why, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a, uh, it was kind of the black sheep of the series, wasn't it? It is the black sheep of the series, um, especially, like, it, it is a game that is connected in, in a very strange way to the other games, but it's, you wouldn't know it to first look at it when you first start out the game. First of all, uh, I believe Sega uh, poached their top talent uh, from Fantasy Star 2 to work on the Sonic team. So you had a whole new team on Fantasy Star 3, which was a very sword and sorcery looking RPG for its, for most of its playthrough. Uh, it didn't look nearly as impressive as two. It didn't sound nearly as impressive as two. It didn't, didn't have a, a fantastic story next to the other games, but it, it still kind of did this multi generational thing before Dragon Quest V did, which was ambitious. Uh, but yeah, it was, it, it doesn't have, give off that immediate, you know, you are in a sci fi game the way that the other Fantasy Star games do. Well, I guess by that time, Fantasy Star's talent was being cannibalized a bit for Sonic Team. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, which which makes sense, but it's a shame for Fantasy Star fans to, to have that happen. I could see why Shane would be sad. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, we touched on the original Fantasy Star on the Sega Master System, which you should go listen to our Sega Master System console RPG quest. And, of course, Reiko Kodama um, is a huge part of RPG history, having worked on games like Skies of Acadia and that kind of thing. And she is Mm -hmm. best known, maybe, for Fantasy Star. And I think Reiko Kodama and Yu Suzuki and the Sonic Team folks showed how what kind of, like, talented developers were involved on the Japanese side of uh, the Sega Genesis. Uh, Like, you look... You look at that, and in some respects, it's kind of a murderer's row of top talent. Yeah, it really is, and uh, they they brought their best to the Genesis, even though you know, we all know Tom Kalinske saved everything, but <laughs> they helped a little bit. What's funny is that there's this book uh, called Game Over, um, which is considered like one of the better examples of, uh, I mean, maybe like a foundational text, I suppose, of game history that talked about yes, the creation that. of the, the original Nintendo and all that. And the only time it ever really talks about the Sega Genesis, which was blowing up at the time of that book being written, was kind of to talk backhandedly about how the Genesis just didn't have as good of developers. Uh, well, uh, the thing about that is, did it really, like, was it originally written b- that far back? Because when I bought it, it had been, like, revised for the N64 era. I think I have a first edition that I found in a Goodwill somewhere. Oh, wow. A good find. Yeah. And it it shows some kid who's dressed up like he's from one of those old school portraits uh, <laughs> from the 1990s, like staring yeah. at a computer monitor. And I guess that makes sense. And it's framed as kind of a scare book about how uh, video games are taking over the brains of your kids when actually it was the history of games. <laughs> I was going to say, it was a very informative book for a long time. It was practically the only source. It said how video games zapped a generation or something like that. Oh, Jesus Christ. They always go with the zapped a generation thing. Yeah. So, 
Yeah, so the Genesis barely gets mentioned, and that was like 1990. But, I mean, if we look back now, like, uh, in fact, Sega had a lot of really top talent, and Reiko Kodama was a big one, though. She was... um, she received a reward at the GDC Awards just uh, this year, and she did mm-hmm. a, a video message thanking everybody. But she, um, as always, was really careful to stress that there are a lot of like really talented people on her team, and she doesn't particularly like being singled out. And right, like as usual, she was kind of like passing along the credit, which is fair because video games are a massive team effort. <laughs> Of course, yeah. Uh, gosh, even back then when the staffs were a lot smaller, there's a whole lot of people involved. So, I mean, we've talked about Fantasy Star 4, which is the best RPG on the Sega Genesis. If mm-hmm. you want to hear more about why Fantasy Star 4 is amazing, can I refer you to our Top 25 RPG episode specifically about it, in which I had the aforementioned Shane Bettenhausen on to talk about it in which we talked about how beautiful it's kind of anime cutscenes were and such and how it uh it really does look really nice today nadia you you got into fantasy star again or maybe for the first time just recently in the nintendo switch do you have anything you want to add about fantasy star i actually got into fantasy star 4 i can't remember uh, okay, I remember now. It was around the time I was blogging for One Up, and we all just kind of committed to playing a game that we hadn't played before and blogged about it. So that was my first experience with uh, Fantasy Star Four, like as a real like a game that I actually played. And yeah, I just remember being just impressed with it and how you know even by now I I, I had like years and years of RPG games under my belt and just how different and interesting Fantasy Star Four comparatively felt. Uh, even though it was an old game. Uh, I will say that I will curse the menus to hell because if you are trying to shop for stuff, like stuff to make yourself stronger and better, uh, good luck to you because the menus are all like kind of like vernacular that you have to know. (laughs) And I guess maybe in some universe, if you have an an instruction booklet, that'll help you out. But that didn't help me out. So uh, I would still say that um, these... Genesis Collection that just came out on the Switch is still a really good way to play Fantasy Star 4 because you have your save states, you have, of course, your portability, and it's still a really good RPG. I love Alice, the main character. Um, even now, you don't get, like, characters as cool as she is that often. Yeah, it's still a very good RPG to play. I do wish that M2 would give it a good once-over the way they did it with the original Fantasy Star, but who knows? They still might. Uh, yeah, very much worth your time. The other series I feel like, the, the, the other RPG series that I feel is most often connected with the Sega Genesis is Shining Force. Yes. And I wasn't, a, I wasn't really aware that Shining in the Darkness, which is a dungeon-crawling RPG, it's not a tactics RPG, was kind of the, the first one. Yeah, um, that surprised me too, but I learned that recently. It is the, anything I guess with Shining in it is a safe bet that is part of the same series. But yes, same developer, same universe, just different genres. Uh, Shining in the Darkness is, it's a dungeon crawler, it's fine, um, it's not terrible, but it's definitely one of those games where uh, build your own map or get lost, it's your choice. Uh, I will say that was hilarious, that makes me laugh like hell whenever I play the game or look at the, uh, look at the videos of it. Uh, when the enemies in that game die, they kind of do that Michael Jackson scream from Moonwalker. <laughs> like, whoo! And that's a very sort of unique sort of Genesis treat right there. 
Yeah, Michael Jackson's Moonwalker. Now there's a Sega artifact. It really is. And um, rescuing kids is Michael Jackson. Oh yeah. And that that really aged well, didn't it? I'm still like kind of mad that you get through the uh, graveyard level, but it's you don't get thrill or you get something else. I forget what. Well, it would have cost too much money to license, even though they had Michael Jackson, apparently. Yeah, apparently someone else wrote the song. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, so yeah, Shine in the Darkness, it was kind of of its time, I suppose you could say. But man, you look at it, it's quite gorgeous. It really is. Um, I find that RPGs made really good use of the Genesis's like basic color palette. Yes, it was less than what you get the, with the SNES, but... All the graphics I find for the for most of the RPGs on that system are very cartoony. They're very lively, very bright, and I I still like that a lot. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that was Shining Force. That as a Nintendo kid, even you were jealous of how good those games looked. Yeah, I mean, uh, you had these big, bright character sprites fighting each other. The monster sprites were animated. The character sprites were animated. It was a pretty good looking game, and the character designs were all a lot of fun and very unique. Yeah, the sad thing about Shining Force and then also uh, with Fantasy Star is that they really had their heyday on the Sega Genesis. And then after the Sega Genesis, one way or another, they kind of fell away. I mean, there are people who are going to defend Fantasy Star Online to the death and absolutely love it. But at the same time, it's an MMO. It's a very different experience. It is a very different experience. I think uh, story-wise, even, it's quite divorced from, um, you know, the the basic storyline from the first uh, four games, which, again, are a self-contained story. Uh, I am curious to see Fantasy Star 2 on the Wii. Uh, sorry, the Wii, Jesus. The uh, Switch, but um, that's that's a ways off. It'd be really nice if we got Fire Emblem Three Houses, but it's Shining Force. The carrot, like the uh, the sprite works? Uh, like the big what I'm saying characters. is a Switch game... That is faithful to the kind of the Shining Force feel, but, mm. you know, it's a modern game. <laughs> That'd be interesting, yeah. I'd play that. Because it's interesting that Fire Emblem and Shining Force are roughly contemporaneous with one another, but that mm-hmm. Fire Emblem is very much still alive and arguably doing better than ever, whereas Shining Force is largely lost to history. Yeah, and um, I, for years, it took me years and years to realize that... Uh, Shining Force was supposed to be a competitor to Fire Emblem. I had no idea what Fire Emblem even was. That's really interesting, because I had no idea what Shining Force was for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) I knew knew about Fire Emblem before I knew about Shining Force. Really? Yeah. interesting. I was... I I don't think you understand how unaware I was of Sega Genesis RPGs during its time, because I was very firmly a Nintendo kid, Mm -hmm. but... Uh, so, like, I knew the name Shining Force because people had mentioned it to me, but right. I did not, I was not aware that it was a tactics RPG until some time after I had become a Fire Emblem fan. All that said, we should totally do a uh, an episode just on Shining Force sometime, Nadia, because there is a lot to it, <laughs> all things considered. There are a lot of Shining Force games one way or another. From the dungeon crawler games to the strategy games, mm-hmm. even like action RPG games, not all of them good. Right, of course. Uh, I'm sure we could find someone, like several people, who would probably love to come on the show and talk about it if they grew up with the series. So I guess we might as well talk about the Sega CD now, which 
I mean, do you remember the CD craze, Nadia? Yeah, Nintendo almost got into that one, but uh, backed out at the end. And then created its greatest rival in the process. It did. Talk about, you know, top 10 anime betrayals. That's a big one. (laughs) That was a big one, yeah. But the... I remember everybody was super excited about the Sega CD because there was the multimedia craze of the early 90s. Mm-hmm. People weren't really mm-hmm. aware of the internet as a thing or the concept of being able to st- access data remotely. So everybody was very excited about high-capacity storage and the yes. ability to put videos and such on them uh, without really understanding what exactly that would entail. <laughs> Yeah, uh, we all know the story of Night Trap. If you're not familiar with it, uh, you can definitely read it. It's on our site. I wrote it not too long ago for the uh, anniversary special that came out not uh, you know sometime earlier this year. Uh, I will say one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me in my life was I was caught in a rainstorm on my way to my parents' house, and I uh, was soaking wet by the time I got there. And my mom said, "Oh, hold on, I'll get you a dry shirt because we're roughly the same size." She gets me a shirt, and it's digital pictures, the logo on it which is the people who made Night Trap. I'm like, where the hell did you get a digital picture shirt from? They're like, what? Who are they? I don't know. So to this, I took it home, of course. Uh, to this day, I have no idea where she got that. That's so weird. Uh, very strange. When I think of the second CD, I think of Sewer Shark. Oh, God, yes. And the, the, the characters talking to you like one-on-one and being all cool and it's so low budget. It's beautiful. And I thought it would be so cool to have you know these full motion videos and such but every time i read reviews of games for sega cd in various game magazines they were always complaining about load times yes and how they weren't really any better than the the normal version etc 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 yeah uh at best you got um better music like with echo the dolphin but load times yeah and you also got sonic cd yeah sonic cd um well, of course, you can get like a much better version of that now, where the Christian Whitehead did basically the definitive version of the game. I wish they'd put that on Switch. Uh, but even the Sega CD version of Sonic CD, uh, if you've ever seen the anime clips for that, they basically slowed it down to like 10 frames per second and, and 10 colors and just the choppiest animation you can imagine. The, the PC version of the game restores the Sonic boom as we know it today, but the Sega CD version is just kind of a disaster. <laughs> Uh, a, a company that did kind of come into its own on the Sega CD was Game Arts, which we were already discussing earlier. I mean, mm-hmm. I think they're best known for Grandia, but their other really top game was the Lunar series. The Silver Star Story? Uh, I always wanted to play that. I never had a chance. Well, the Silver Star Story is maybe more famous, and it actually makes quite a few changes compared to the Sega CD version, including removing things like random battles from the world map. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty handy. Yeah, the Sega CD version is generally harder, but uh, there's some there are some who would say that maybe its C- its soundtrack is better. Uh, I'd be interested to hear what people have to say about that. Though um, the PlayStation version famously has a cutscene that everybody loves um, that is fondly referred to as the boat song. <laughs> I believe the name is Winds Nocturne. It's one of the main characters singing a song that's straight out of a Don Bluth film from the early 1980s. Oh, the the kind of stuff that when you see it on the CD, it's like like a a game. It's like, wow, that's amazing. But when you see it on the on the in a movie, you'd get up and get more popcorn because you don't care. 
Well, it reminds me of Somewhere Out There from Amer- An American Tale. Well, that's a good song, actually. Oh, it's a very nice song. Um, it it would be like if they were doing the opera sequence from Final Fantasy VI, but they turned it into an anime cutscene. That'd be kind of cool, actually, especially for its time. I mean, it was super cool for its time. I was obsessed with any cutscenes that I could get for some reason on games. <laughs> I don't blame you. They they were very novel. They were the reason to own a CD, uh, a CD system back in the day. I think that in RPG terms, Lunar isn't super remarkable. But at the time, game artists really wanted to make a game that had like kind of elevated the the storytelling of the genre with really nice... Uh, kind of graphics and music and cutscenes and stuff. And the Sega CD kind of afforded them that opportunity at that time and really kind of hit on the strong anime feeling of it. And Very much so, yes. And this is the point where working design starts to enter the picture as well. Um, working yes. Designs was a, a really interesting uh, company. It was a, one of the earlier localization companies that really made its bones on localizing obscure Japanese games. It was, its president was a man named Vic, Vic Ireland. And it uh, localized some of, uh, some games that still have a niche audience today. They include Lunar, uh, Popful mm-hmm. Mail, um, many games on the PlayStation um, and the Sega CD. And Lunar, later on, they would do these kind of lavish versions of Lunar, the Silver Star Story, and right. Lunar Eternal Blue. Um, we already mentioned them with the PC Engine because they did Cosmic Heroin. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and they were, um, gosh, they were like the, I would venture to say they were the first like localizers because they really kind of took the script and made it their own for better or for worse, uh, often for worse sometimes. <laughs> they did their best. Uh, I think that at that time there was still that push i feel to when they localized a japanese game they were trying to turn it into something that you know you know they would take beautiful anime art and kind of make it this generic western uh something that you would see on like D or something generic fantasy exactly yeah yeah uh, which I, I did not love and so working designs just they embraced the foreign element of it which was really cool yeah, I really do appreciate them for that. But uh, then there's like, I remember seeing screenshots in a game magazine uh, from the translation for one of the Lunar games, and it just like had like Bill Clinton jokes and stuff. And that was just weird. Yeah, the Bill Clinton joke. Uh, I think that was actually not on the Sega CD version. That might have been on one of the PlayStation games. Oh, God, that makes it even timelier, I guess. Uh, yeah, it would have been the mid-90s, which was a ripe time for Bill Clinton jokes. Uh, it sure was, wasn't it? Sure was. Uh, but yeah, you know, when I look back on the Sega CD, I feel like it was it took a handful of RPGs and gave them a chance to really shine with yes. the, the really nice cutscenes and um, really nice soundtracks uh, that weren't necessarily as possible on the Sega Genesis and as a consequence uh, was sort of a forerunner kind of predicted what was to come with the PlayStation 1. Yeah, uh, you're right. It was definitely um, I do remember looking back at the ads for uh, Lunar and those other Sega CD games that Working Designs uh, marketed and translated and really kind of wanting to 
to have a Sega CD for myself just so I could play them. But as a peripheral, the Sega CD wasn't that great, and ultimately I would say it was kind of a failure. Yeah, um, I don't know what its final sales numbers were, but it it definitely didn't make a huge dent. And um, I think people realized at some point, well, number one, it was expensive. Uh, number two, combining the Genesis processor with a CD-based media, well, you're going to get a turtle out of that. And the other problem was that FMB really was kind of a passing fad, right? It really was. It, it came and went real fast. And it split the market. Um, if you're a developer, why would you make games for the Sega CD? Because, I mean, not everybody's going to buy the dang thing. And so you're just naturally limiting your ability to sell. It's better yes. to just make a game straight for the base Sega Genesis. And then everybody can have it, both people who own a Sega CD and the people who own the Genesis. <laughs> Yeah, um, it definitely wasn't. Uh, I, I can see why de- developers did not want to to split their base like that because the, the Genesis, sorry, the Sega CD just did not have it. Did not take off. Like, if I were a, a developer, I would look at it and say, "Well, okay, well, here's this game I, I already made. <laughs> Maybe I'll put a nice cutscene on it and uh, put some nice CD music in there, and uh, there you go, have Echo the Dolphin again." So, a few other RPGs. I mean, I suppose I should ha- highlight uh, there was Sword of Vermilion. I already mentioned Yu Suzuki, who Suzuki, worked yeah. on various uh, arcade games in the past. Is of course, best known for Shenmue. Um, Nadia, you did some research into Sword of Vermilion. Do you want to talk about it briefly? Sword of Vermilion was um, a bit of a strange game because uh, it had several perspective shifts, whereas most RPGs would stick to one. Uh, this game decided to have them all, sure, because sure, why the hell not? Uh, towns would be top-down, pretty regular. Uh, you'd go out on the world map, you get like this first-person view while also seeing a map on your right-hand side where you can see where you're going, which is pretty cool. I think a lot of first-person views need that. Uh, and then when you get into a fight, because, you know, random battles would pop up as you travel on the overworld map, uh, you would be pulled into this kind of 2D um, battle scene where you would transition to an action adventure thing and, and stab at, at enemies as they came at you and uh reminds me a little bit of maybe zelda 2 maybe a little bit of uh, the original uh tales of fantasia uh also one thing about this game look up the town theme if you can because it is the most the most dire sounding piece of music i've ever heard in a town in an rpg's talent theme ever like whenever you enter a town you get this really dark synth that goes and you think you're entering the final boss's tower and not just like you know some hamlet off in the corner of a map what do you think of beyond oasis i think i did play it and i thought it was fine i liked it i I think the graphics are fantastic i think the the opening cutscenes with the sort of anime style are still really neat looking um i think it's good (laughs) i hate to say call it like a runner-up because it's not but for genesis owners who didn't have Secret of Mana, they didn't have uh, A Link to the Past, those are definitely the better games, but uh, Beyond Oasis is not a bad consolation prize. Um, fantastic soundtrack, terrible sound effects though. So in a few months, we're going to be getting the Sega Genesis Mini. Um, Mike yes. actually already has one in his possession. You should go read the, uh, the coverage of it. Um, it has a pretty strong library, but... I don't think I'm going to pick one up, Nadia. I I know that my husband wants one, so we'll be picking one up either way. But what's keeping you from it? I don't know. The library just doesn't set my soul on fire. Even though it's, like, pretty solid, ultimately. It has, like, weird curiosities, like um, the Wily Wars and such. 
Yeah, the Wily Wars isn't a bad one to have, especially since apparently they fixed some of the emulation er uh, errors going on. But when I look at it, I think to myself, uh, well, okay, it has Monster World and Wonder Boy and Monster World, which, are those RPGs? Not really. They always get thrown into the mix, but I'm not really sure if I would call them Uh, RPGs. I wouldn't. Uh, It's the same with kind of Landstalker. I mean, what the heck is up with that game? Landstalker, I played Landstalker for like maybe 10 minutes, maybe an hour. I can't remember. I just remember getting really angry at the isometric perspective, which is always fun when you have a, a you know, controller that goes in four directions. And it has a lot of platforming on small platforms, and that's a pain in the ass. If you remember, even in Mario RPG, it was a pain in the ass. But at least with Mario RPGs, number one... The platforms were quite large, so there was a good space to land on, Number, which Landstalker does not have. Number two, if you fail at the platforming sequences in Mario RPG, you usually don't get penalized for them too badly, but Landstalker is like, oh, down this hole with you, I guess. Anyway, it has um, a lot of the games that we were just discussing, including Shining Force and Fantasy Star, which, right. I mean, are pretty much essentials, right? But so many of the games on this list, I feel, are the real, maybe, legacy of the Sega Genesis. Sonic the Hedgehog, Echo Mm -hmm. the Dolphin, Altered Beast, Gunstar Heroes, Castle of Illusion, Thunder Force 3, you know, Street Fighter 2 Special Championship Edition. Right, that's a bit. Um, And I haven't even mentioned the sports games like NHL 94 and Madden. When I think of the Sega Genesis, those are the games I think of. Yeah, and that's that's perfectly normal because it's not like we haven't been sitting here for an hour talking about nothing. But the, the Genesis, uh, its RPG legacy isn't quite what the what well, a lot of systems were, but it still it certainly wasn't anything to sneeze at. Certainly not. Um, it did give us, I mean, an all time classic in Fantasy Star Four. I mean, you cannot mm-hmm. deny that certainly. And Shining Force uh, has a lot of like big fans. And then ultimately, there were a lot of really interesting smaller games kind of out there as well, like Beyond Oasis. I mean, there were a lot of RPGs that we didn't really mention uh, that, I mean, were import only. Uh, There was the weird case of Pure Solar. Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. Wasn't that like a, a new game that came out quite recently? It was a homebrew game. Oh, yes, yes. It came out in 2010. Like so many other RPGs, beautiful graphics, gameplay not so great. <laughs> That's too bad. It looks really interesting, but uh, really well animated. They had a super exactly, high yeah. capacity cart and everything. Oh, I just appreciate the fact that they went all out and didn't even just release ROM. They kind of just distributed this whole thing. But uh, the Sega Genesis really made it big in Europe and America, and not as much in Japan. And so right. I suppose when I think of it, I think of the Mortal Kombat 2 hearings in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> and how Sega was the cool one and Nintendo was all like, yeah, we don't want blood. Here, have some sweat. <laughs> but of course, the Super Nintendo had that as well, right? It's just that yeah. it's only now do we look back on this era in which RPGs really were not appreciated very much. And Definitely. think about these and do properly appreciate games like Fantasy Star 4 and, of course, the Final Fantasy games and all of that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But at the time, in the moment, I feel like we weren't thinking of these games much at all. No, we definitely were not. Uh, I know I wasn't thinking about them nearly as much as I would in the future. 
uh, I didn't start giving RPGs serious thought until after like 93, 94. I think that, so here's a funny thing. I think that ultimately the Genesis has the strongest RPGs of uh, any Sega console. That maybe, mm-hmm. But maybe the, the Sega Saturn has a stronger legacy. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, I feel like the Saturn has a few RPGs that are just really, really, really well remembered, like Panzer Dragon Saga being, you know, the game. Uh, whereas the Genesis has definitely has more RPGs. I feel like. Do you think so? I think the Saturn has more RPGs. I could be totally wrong about this. When I think of the Saturn RPGs, and this is something we'll get to, I'm sure. But like, I think of like Panzer Dragoon. I think of Dragon Force. Uh, we talked about Shining Force Three. I mean, uh, just sure all the Super Robot Wars games alone. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, you got me there. <laughs> and, uh, like, there are so many licensed games that came out on the, the Sega Saturn that were, like, RPGs, like Magic Knight Rayearth. And uh, Virtual Highlight, which wasn't licensed, but I just felt like saying it. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I mean, we'll get to the Sega Saturn soon enough. But uh, as for the Sega Genesis... Um, but as for the Sega Genesis, I do think that it was Sega's best console, probably. Do you agree, Nadia? I think so. Um, I have to admit, I didn't get much hands-on time with the Saturn. I'd like to someday. Uh, but I will also freely admit that I was just never in love with the Dreamcast. And I will just come right out and say that so everyone can just ready their slings and arrows as they will. Because, yeah, I, I will go with the Genesis when I'm put up. Well, now that we've confirmed that Nadia is a bad person, maybe send me an email at cat.bailey at usgamer.net if you love the Sega Genesis, or send me a DM on Twitter, or leave a comment on the show notes. And that is a wrap for the console RPG quest of the Sega Genesis. All right, let's move on to the mailbag. All right, Nadia, let's move on to the mailbag really quickly. Uh, last week, we talked about the best RPG romances. And this first one is from Hao Tran, who says, I really liked your point about having characters that act and do things with each other without needing to the main pro- protagonist getting involved. This was actually what I felt to be one of the major misses when I played through Persona 5. I enjoyed the banter between the non-protagonist characters, but they never seemed to spend time together unless you were there as well. From the P5R character trailers so far, it might get expanded, but we'll have to wait and see. What's your take of this on this, Nadia, since you actually finished the game? Uh, I can't say I ever thought of it in that regard. Uh, but, you know, thinking about it, because uh, one thing I really like about Fire Emblem series, uh, the Fire Emblem series in particular, uh, Fire Emblem Three Houses, is, yeah, characters uh, form relationships whether you're there or not. And actually, um, in the Golden Deer house, I think the relationship that forms between Marianne and Lawrence is, and Lawrence is really, really sweet. So I, I appreciate, uh, I guess, all forms of romance. But yeah, I can see where uh, we're coming from in terms of, well, okay, if these people are doing their own thing without the protagonist being there, it really does kind of come off as uh, a little more organic. Serana says, definitely agree on achievements, trophies related to romance being weird. Getting one in Dragon Age 2 is what made <laughs> me go and find the way to turn those notifications off. Also, I think that limitations on who you can romance with regard to gender tend to only be interesting if unexpected, or if they go against the norm. 
comparing your examples of Sarah in Dragon Age Inquisition versus Jack in Mass Effect 2. When something's been missing by default so often, it feels more like oversight or exclusion rather than an interesting story decision. Mola underscore Ram says, I loved Saints Row 4 poking fun at Bioware romances. After you do a character's personal mission, there is a conversation afterward, and you have the option of pushing the romance button. It always works. <laughs> you can do it with multiple characters, whether you're a guy or a girl, and the results are often hilarious. One conversation goes like this. Hey, character name, wanna F? And they go, sure. They start making out, fade to black, and it's never mentioned again. <laughs> you just press the romance button. That's great. I like that. Uh, RPG romance doesn't matter to me as a selling point, says Nice Guy Neon. But if it's there, I'll do it to roleplay as a character. So Witcher 3 was Yennefer, though to be fair, I never romanced Triss outside of Witcher 2. In the original, I chose Shani, so Triss never stood a chance for my Geralt by the time I continued into 3. Persona 3, I went with Mitsuru, but because I wanted Senpai to notice me. Persona 4 was Yukiko, because <laughs> she was the best. In Mass Effect, when I played three times, I went with Ashley in the first game. So no romance in the second, and my chef looked at a photo of Ashley somewhere near the end, where I assume you'd be getting it on, and then the third stayed with her. Very committed Paragon Shep in that playthrough. Then in subsequent playthroughs, as I made different choices jumping around and stuff, brilliant trilogy and my favorite thing from Bioware. As far as the Dragon Age 2 discussion, I think Dragon Age 2 is a very entertaining game, but that doesn't mean it's a good game. I enjoyed the characters and how they interacted with one another. It really does it better than either Origins or Inquisition, really. But as a complete package, to consider Dragon Age 2 as anything but unfinished and rushed, Making it a complete, me- completely mediocre experience is being way too lenient. It's not the worst game ever made or anything. Like, if you're craving a fantasy RPG, it does the job to some extent and has some merits, especially if you like good, fun characters. There are so many better games that are out there that you already know actually good. Nadia, mm. how do you pick your romance in an RPG? Are you going for more of a role-playing bent, or do you just pick the character that you think is the best? Uh, I think uh, I usually don't do the role-play stuff too much. I just pick the character I think is cutest. Um, like right now in Fire Emblem, I'm going for Shamir. Uh, I guess when I... Can you romance that, her? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, you can. Hot. <laughs> yeah, she is. She, I have to admit. But thinking back to Persona 5 and how I went for... Uh, I can't remember her name because I didn't get... I, I eventually rejected her like an idiot, the goth doctor, who was very similar in character design. I said, oh, I guess I have a type. But So there's that. Uh, but yeah, I... Um, I, I just kind of look who's the, who's the coolest, and I go with that. Yeah, I'm the same way. I'm I'm easy. <laughs> yeah. I just like the one with the best design that I think is kind of the cutest. Exactly. That's that's. I'm very shallow. I admit it. Uh, there was a comic that I retweeted that I really enjoyed from Fire Emblem Three Houses, which was a sh- shot of Edelgard and um, Byleth from one of the opening moments of the game, except it has. Edelgard looking at Byleth from behind and then going, oh my god, do I like women? (laughs) (laughs) I think I saw that. That was great. I found it really affecting, honestly, because I've had that moment in my life, and I was like, wow, (laughs) dang, I don't know why, but this is getting me right in the feels. Aw. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, A lot of people have uh, kind of come to that conclusion through video games. (laughs) Alright, thanks for listening. This episode ran on a little bit long. But Just that is the way to go, way it is. We had a lot to discuss this week, Nadia. Yes, we did. That's what happens when I go away for a week. The Blood God is pleased. And the way that you can continue to please the Blood God is to follow us on Twitter. At the, me, I'm on Twitter at the underscore Catbot. 
Nadia is at Nadia Oxford, and you should follow all of our social media accounts at USGamerNet. I should add that if you want to go to PAX West, we're doing a giveaway right now. You can go on to our site, and you will find a news post with all the giveaway information. If you subscribe to the podcast or follow us on one of our social media accounts, you'll be entered into a drawing, and we will give away a four-day pass to five lucky people who um, who enter. So you can come to one of our many panels, which includes one that's being hosted by Nadia that would may appeal to Axis of Blood God fans. It's going to include Tim Rogers and Ash Paulson from Game Explain. And you guys are going to be taking a deep dive into Midgar. Yes, we are we're going to be taking a deep dive into the uh, op- uh, into the uh, environments of Midgar and just uh, the visual storytelling they present because that is pretty fantastic. I feel like that's aged really well. One thing about the game that's aged really well. Yes, and we're also going to be doing a an event in which you can try out Grand Blue Fantasy Versus while playing against Justin Wong and having a commentator commentate live, and you also get prizes. We're doing a deep dive into Metal Gear Solid's timeline, and this is another one that RPG fans might enjoy. Uh, Eric Van Allen is doing an onstage interview with Kara Ellison, who is the writer of Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2, and talking to her about her transition from journalist to writer and how she's, what she's doing with Bloodlines 2, kind of updating it for 2019, that kind of thing. So I think that would be a great panel for RPG fans to attend. And the good news is, if you can't make it, we're going to turn the Final Fantasy VII panel into a podcast, so you'll be able to listen to it mm-hmm. right here. But in the meantime, yeah, go to PAX West, go win a go win a thing, go say hi to the U.S. Gamer <laughs> uh, writers and everybody else from Gamer Network. Yes, please do. Okay. Uh, subscribe to all of our stuff. Subscribe to our newsletter. We'll be back next week, as usual, for more RPG goodness. But until then, for Nadia and myself, thank you for listening and happy adventuring. <laughs>